0: 629 in your blue Bible. We're in Daniel chapter five. Daniel chapter five, page 629 in a blue Bible, because we are uh, going to get into this real deep, like. So I need you to be with me. And I recognize that this is the time change, but let's face, it. I mean, this is like you know, it's like 10 o'clock. So that's the benefit of an 11 o'clock church. So, but let's we're we're dragging today, right? You're dragging. Like, even if it's not hitting you now, there's this general lament that you lost that hour. You know, it's like, why, oh God, why did you take that from me? But you're going to get the sunlight later today. You know, so maybe that will lift your heart. But the rest of the week, you're going to be off kilter. If you have kids, God bless you, because, you know, you're going to be like, this is Satan's spawn. It's okay. But we're going to make it through this together, all right? This, because I've got stuff to say, and you're going to be there with me. Okay? Most important book in human history, and especially since the Enlightenment, when literacy rates went up, was the Bible. And what's very interesting is that as time has progressed, people are less biblically literate than they used to be. Biblical literacy rates hit high, even for people who didn't even believe in the Bible, to the extent that there are things that are in the Bible that have become commonalities that sometimes today we use Phrases in everyday language that we don't recognize come from the Bible at all. Maybe you've talked about something happening in the 11th hour. I don't know if you realize that this really harkens to this idea of parable that Jesus told about the uh, pending, pending return of the Lord. So sometimes we'll say, well, I, this, you know, I got this done at the 11th hour. That's basically a biblical phrase. The phrase, the blind leading the blind... I don't know if you know this, is that this is, again, part of a parable that Jesus told. And maybe you're like, yeah, I remember Jesus talked sometimes around blind people and such. But to know that that phrase is basically a biblical metaphor. The phrase, by the skin of your teeth, comes from an obscure verse from the book of Job. I don't know if people actually say that anymore. Like, I think that might be an old-timey thing. Has anybody used skin of your teeth in a recent conversation? Some of you. Okay, you also have that filter on your Instagram. That's fine. It's old-timey. Then finally, uh, at your wit's end is a phrase taken from the book of Psalms. So, there, and there, there are much more. And actually, when William Tyndale, who was responsible for one of the earliest English translations of the Bible, because there were not... Uh, words that they uh, could translate in English, sometimes made up words that became part of the English language, but the influence of the Bible is great. So we assume sometimes that when you come into a church that people have a deep knowledge of the Bible, and where we're at here in our study in the book of Daniel is we've been going through uh, a a book that is full of well-known stories, right? A, A few weeks ago, Kelly taught about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace, and some of us who don't have, like, even a deep biblical knowledge you know that one. Next week, Chris is going to be teaching about Daniel and the lion's den. And you'll find that even people who aren't really familiar in the Bible can resonate with this idea that there was a story about a guy named Dan who was amongst lions. Well, today I think we're hitting, of all the narratives in Daniel, one of the deeper cuts. And it introduces a phrase that many of us have maybe heard, the writing on the wall, and it deals with that literally. Like we're going to discuss when the writing was on the wall in the book of Daniel. So maybe you are familiar with this story, or maybe it was something that you learned on flannel graph decades ago. Wherever you are in that, we're going to go deep into a peculiar story that we often don't go into here on, uh, here, as we continue our study of the book of Daniel. But what we need to do is to recap how we got to this place. And it all starts with God's people in the Old Testament. This is centuries before Jesus is on the. scene god had called his people to to leave slavery from egypt to go into the promised land they meandered there a lot of crazy stuff happened and finally god said look you're my people but you're horrible you're horrible you need to change they did not change and god said fine what i'm going to allow is the destruction of your holiest the holiest thing in your existence the temple I'm going to allow an invading army to come in to ransack your city, to tear down and take all of the valuable items from that city to a far land, and they'll take you with them as well. So the Babylonian army, and we know in 586 BC was the year that they ransacked Jerusalem, and they took many of the best and brightest of the city from Jerusalem on a 900-mile trek back to Babylon, And this is the opening scene of this. The main character throughout that process, the one who laid siege to Jerusalem and that we've been studying in the past few weeks in this book is this guy named Nebuchadnezzar. One of the more interesting biblical names there. And Nebuchadnezzar, we know, by the way, a historical figure too. So when we talk about these people, there's archaeological proof that a man named Nebuchadnezzar lived, and he is generally known in the broader world, Chris mentioned this last week, for the creation of the hanging gardens of Babylon, which are considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. So he really is a key character in the book of Daniel because we see his journey intermingling with the journey of God's people. So just to do some review, if you want to stick your thumb there and go back and remember Daniel chapter 1. When this exile happened, all these people came in and the king demanded that all the young Israelites, they observe the Babylonian culture and dietary laws. And there was four young men, Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. Those four stood up and said, we will not do that. And God blessed them even when they stood up to the command of the king. In Daniel chapter 2, this king had a dream that he could not fathom. He did not understand what it meant. He asked the wisest men of the country to interpret it. They could not come up with it. But Daniel was able to because he was blessed by God. And it was a dream of a magnificent statue that at the, at the bottom of it was unstable. And God and basically said through Daniel, that's going to be like your kingdom. It will not be stable. It is going to collapse ultimately. So the response to that in Daniel chapter 3 is the king said, okay, if my kingdom's like an unstable statue, I'm going to make the biggest flippant statue imaginable, and I'm going to make it out of pure gold so it's going to be as solid as possible, and I'm going to make everybody worship this, but those three dudes, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, did not bow down. They were thrown into a fiery furnace, but they survived by the help of God. And then Daniel chapter 4, which Chris taught about last week, such an interesting story, friends, because I always tell this to people, is that Daniel chapter four is in your Bible, but it is a chapter entirely written by a pagan. You know, could you imagine that just saying, here, I want somebody to explain faith. Let me grab an atheist, and I'll allow them to be the voice for that. Basically, God permitted this pagan king, Nebuchadnezzar, to talk about a story. It was a story where he said, I was on the highest of heights, but God humbled me. I was on the lowest of lows, and then what emerged out of this, and this is some great Bible here, great Bible from Daniel chapter 4. Right at the end of the chapter, we read this, the words of Nebuchadnezzar, I praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven because everything he does is right, all of his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble So the pathway of this dude was one that God permitted him to become the most powerful ruler on the face of the earth. He intertwined his life with God's people. And by the end, when he was humbled, Nebuchadnezzar said, I have reached this conclusion that their God is God. Their God is God, and he is worthy of worship. Okay, all of that is to get us to this point in Daniel chapter 5, this obscure story. And sometimes we have people read, but I'm just going to read through some of the scriptures here today. So if you are on page 629 in your Blue Bible or on your digital app, Daniel chapter, one, or chapter 5, verse 1. It says King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. That's a. I just want to stop there because it's a great life verse, right? Like this, this king drank. He got a drank on. But this is what's interesting. Look back just before where we were. Right, this verse that we just looked at. Remember the end of this? Chapter four ends with I Nebuchadnezzar understand that the God of the Israelites He's really God. And then we get to the next chapter, just the next verse. And by the way, it's not like Daniel when he's writing this stuff up. He goes and chapter five. No, in the scrolls this is all together. So this is seamless. So this king says I believe that their God is God. And in the next verse, he's gone. Do you realize that? It's not the same king. His is, that was Nebuchadnezzar. This is Belshazzar. Like, what happened? It's, and no joke, there are scholars who are like, this just shows the inaccuracy of the Bible because it talked no more about the lineage and reign because there's this text that is missing. But I'm going to tell you, this text isn't missing. It's just the natural flow. Because see in the life of Nebuchadnezzar this, is as much as Nebuchadnezzar was able to turn his life around, he committed incredible atrocities, specifically atrocities against God's people. Now here's the beautiful thing about the redemption of God. No matter how bad you are, God will redeem you. Right there. That is the story of the gospel, which is just transformational. No matter who you are, one of God's greatest servants in the New Testament, the guy who authored the majority of it, Paul, was somebody who killed Christians in his life, and yet God redeemed that. Now, even though God redeems, it doesn't then mean that those previous actions are without consequence. Okay, so we're like, yeah, God forgives and stuff, and he forgets. Praise Jesus, but that's still does not remove the responsibility of the atrocities committed. And this is something, as much as there's the redemption of Nebuchadnezzar, there's the ugliness of Nebuchadnezzar. So in this transition, this is just a reminder from us, as we go from the end of chapter four to the beginning of chapter five, yes, Nebuchadnezzar lived, but boy, life goes on. So as much as we get caught up with people in power thinking, oh no, this is gonna be the end of everything because these people who are leading are so horrible, understand is that they come They go, but God is always there. But it's interesting is that as we see Belshazzar, who is a descendant of Nebuchadnezzar, come to power, it's just like we're we're going through the repeat of this previous story. That Nebuchadnezzar was that. He came full circle, and now here's another ruler. And what is this ruler doing? He's basically getting drunk. Now again, this is more about drunkenness, and we're going to figure this out right here in Daniel chapter 5, verses 2 through 4. Let's move forward. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem, so that the kings and the nobles, his wives and his concubines, might drink from them. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines, drank from them. And as they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, iron, bronze, wood, and stone. Okay, so here is this too. We, 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 we get the transition from chapter 4. From this humbled king, we begin chapter 5 with this king who is drunk on power, and he's actually not just drunk on power. He's just literally drunk. The original Hebrew in verse 2 reads as follows. It says that the king took counsel with his wine. Do you know what I mean? So it's like what the Bible is trying to say is, look, this guy loved his liquor so much is that he saw it as a key advisor. You know, it's like, what shall I do with this? I can Google it or I I can find a 40, right? Like that is the decision-making prowess. And what the Bible, what the author is trying to relay to us here is that, yes, this guy's life was not governed by something bigger, but he saw his advisor as the bottle. And friends, again, this is not just a, uh, you know, a, a Alcoholics Anonymous commercial for us today, but it's just to understand how quickly things have changed. This is not this, you know, if you read through it through a prohibitionist lens, starting in chapter 1 in this, and you're just like, all I get from Daniel is just like, don't drink. Like that. This is not the lesson here. The lesson then is how he reacts to everything. This man who's taking his counsel of the wine is using his drunkenness to lead him into a twofold mistake, a problem. The first thing that he does is he drags out all the relics that his father had taken from the temple in Jerusalem these things that were at the temple that were made by priests that were holy and consecrated and that were to be used only for the worship of the Lord so you know that, that it, basically it's you know like walking into somebody's house taking the good china and saying i'll have to go to the restroom and use this as a receptacle right I don't know much about Martha Stewart living, but I'm going to say that that is not a good way in which to operate when you're a guest. And similarly, Boshazar was just like, let's take these relics and let's just use it to, let's just get drunk and use these as the chalices, Okay, so there's that disrespect, number one. But the second thing that happens is after that, then it turns into this demented worship service, and the object of worship is, praise be to the gods who gave us these cups and chalices, right? The gods of gold and silver, and it is just a blatant insult of God on multiple levels. So we keep moving with us, friends, verses 5 and 6 of Daniel chapter 5. Suddenly... The fingers of a human hand appeared. Yes. So if you're unfamiliar with this, this is getting freaky. It's from the Bible. A human fingers from a hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale and he was so frightened that his knees knocked together and his legs gave way. Okay, I cannot, you know, yeah. Whenever you're reading the Bible and disembodied hands show up, it's awkward, that's fine. And some of you are like, this is in the Bible. It's in the Bible. So some of you are like, I don't know how, you know, how did you know, the flood happen and it was worldwide? And then how did the continent shape and, you know, all this stuff? I was like, friends, if that's your concern with the Bible, you go to Daniel 5 and just say, what the hell is up with this human hand that just appears out of nowhere? Like, the only thing I'd like him to do is, like, the, you know, like, thing from Adam's family. Am I dating myself with this reference? I even put in the new, uh, you know, the, the new version from, by the way, Adam's Family Values, I think, is one of the best movies ever, and it holds up so well. So the first one was just okay, but Adam's Family Values, I mean, that's like in my tw- top 30 movies, but they created a thing which was just supposed to be this disembodied hand, and friends, it appears in the Bible, now, this is what's fascinating about it, is what does the finger do? The finger in the middle of this banquet hall finds a wall, so it appears out of nowhere, and I just don't know, like, we don't give this full description, because I remember when I was growing up, they would make Bible art to illustrate this thing, so when you were in Sunday school, and I just remember it being like this huge, massive hand, and that would even freak me out more, right? It's like, where is Hulk, and why is his hand writing on the wall? We don't know if it's just like this massive hand or this small finger, and we don't know how it is even going through the pl- plaster because these walls are plaster and for me to be able to do this i'm going to have to shawshank redemption that stuff over years so it's not happening naturally right like it's just got to happen really quick so there's this big hand writing on the wall and this is the reaction of the king he is so afraid Now listen, is that what we find out as we read through, and we're not going to read all of chapter five, but we're going to read parts of it. Here in verses seven and eight, what we see is that one of the things about the writing that's on the wall is that nobody at the time, they have no idea what it says, right? So if a hand shows up and is starting to write on the wall, you know, and it's writing something that's illegible or or beyond my understanding that's scary enough but I'm going to tell you that's not what set Belshazzar the king into this frenzy of fear okay because look there, there are things written places all over that I just do not understand Last year, we were out of the country, you know, and you'd be driving down, you know, we were driving down like the little highway in Switzerland, and there's like a billboard. And billboards are just so forgettable anyways, right? But then you're like, that billboard is written in French, and I don't know what it means. So it's like I stare longer as if staring at it is going to somehow help me understand French. Or maybe you're like me. I live in the city, so I see stuff written on walls all the time. Like, we we have some finely trained graffiti artists in this town. And sometimes I'll look at their tags and I'm just like, I don't know what you're doing here. Like, I understand the phallic image next to your tag. Like, I know what that is, but I don't understand that. And that's fine. Okay? But listen, that in of itself, when I don't know words, like, that's intimidating. But here is what sent Belshazzar the king into a frenzy he did not know what that hand was so that's why his knees were shaking that's why he was in this point of not knowing it is that if just writing had appeared that would be crazy enough but because the finger appeared he knew that this was something that was supernatural and it was something that he could not explain so he goes on this mission to try to figure out what this is about now I'm telling you this is why I need you are are you with me is this good? I'm trying to drop stuff in to keep you engaged. Because this is a deep, deep, deeper cut. Biblical deeper cut. Alright? Have you ever heard a sermon on Belshazzar before? Belshazzar and fingers writing them all? Maybe not. This is why. Because you can't get into this and you can't just be like, and your life is like a finger. It doesn't work out well. So you gotta stick with me. Alright? Everyone? Preach? This is a lot. Verses 13 through 24. And I was like, how do I summarize this? And by the way, I've already skipped verses. I gotta go through it. Can we do this together? Verses 13 through 24. So who do they bring, obviously? Daniel. So Daniel was brought before the king, and the king said to him, Are you Daniel, one of the exiles my father, the king brought from Judah? I've heard that the spirit of the gods is in you. And by the way, just parenthetically, who is in him? The spirit of the gods. So we see that Belshazzar has not achieved the same spiritual place where Daniel is at. I see that the gods are uh, in you and that you have insight, intelligence, outstanding wisdom. That wise men and enchanters were brought before me to read this writing and to tell me what it means, but they couldn't explain it. Now I've heard that you're able to give interpretation and to solve difficult problems. If you can read this writing and tell me what it means, you will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around your neck, Atlanta, and you will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. I don't know where Atlanta came from. It just felt right. Anyone? The king answered, or excuse me, Daniel answered the king, You can keep your gifts, give your rewards to somebody else, but nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. And here Daniel then speaks to this. And this is what you see Daniel doing the whole time, right? We talked about this as a series. This is about courage under fire. Daniel is at the point now where he will say anything to anybody in power with no fear of repercussion, he doesn't care. This guy's just like, hey, I'll tell you. this is what God says. Verse 18. O king, the most high God gave your father Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. And because of the high position he gave him, all the peoples and nations of men of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted put to death, he put to death. Those the king wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. And those he wanted to humble, he humbled. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from the people, given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like cattle, and his body was drenched with the dew of the heavens until he acknowledged that the most high God is sovereign over the kingdoms and sets over them anyone he wishes. By the way, so this is the guy's son. He's kind of like, he's like, what happened to dad? Oh yeah, dad is out in the wilderness living like a man cow or something like that. Like, it's, it's Belshazzar remembers this, but there's this in-depth description that Daniel says. It's like, remember this exactly what happened to your dad? He was the most powerful man. Then God humbled him so he was living out in the wild like an animal. Okay, this is what the Lord did. But here's verse 22. But you, his son, O Belshazzar, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all of this. Instead, you set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You have the goblets from his temple brought to you and to your nobles and your wives and your concubines and they drank wine from them. You praise the gods of silver and gold, of bronze and iron, wood and stone, which cannot see or understand, but you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. So basically, Daniel's just like, open up in a can and says, I'm gonna have a drink and I'm gonna drink the whole thing and crush it against my forehead because that's how bad you have been, Right? Like he is putting the scene together that you have disobeyed God even though it was right before you the whole time. Will you look at verse 22 right here? That's the phrase I want us to focus on. Though you knew, Daniel is saying, look, it would be bad enough if you did this silliness out of ignorance. We can excuse ignorance. You have no ignorance. You knew You knew how bad it was, and yet you were like, I'm coming back to the buffet for thirds and fourths and fifths. You knew how God was. You had seen him humble your father, and you were like, I don't care. I don't care. Man, verse 25. Oh, I I dropped this in here might as well, who knows what I'm preaching anymore? It's a slide. I have to stop. But there's this phrase that has always been attributed to Mark Twain, but if you did the historical research, it didn't appear till after he was dead. So it's like everything that happens, right? It's like we love to attribute quotes to people after they're dead because it's like that's like something they would say. People are like, this is something that Mark Twain would say. But when we talk about ignorance of things, friends, I have a long tolerance for people outside of Christ who commit what we Christians would say are, are like horrible sins, I have that tolerance because sometimes they just don't know. Right? There's this idea of doing something that is wrong, but not actually knowing it's wrong. You know what? There's some leeway right here. So Mark Twain was supposed to have said, it's not the things which I do not understand in the Bible that trouble me, but it's the things I do understand. And that's how many of us, that's what the problem is. It's, friends, it's not bad if we do something wrong, but if we knowingly do something wrong, something that we should know better about, then that stands before, that puts us before the Lord in just need of his, we need his forgiveness because we're due his wrath. Okay, so verses 25 through 28. Almost there, everybody. Almost there. Daniel continues. This is the inscription of what was written on the wall. Mene, mene, tekel, parson. This is what these words mean. Mene, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, You've been a found weight on the scales and you have found wanting and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is going to be divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. By the way, don't get caught up, you know, some of us are like, wait a second, you know, that first word was parson and this is Perez. It's like the Bible has made this mistake. Friends, that's not the that's not the point of what the author was looking for. It's like well, you know, and, and by the way. When you live among geeky biblical scholars, this is the type of thing they want to argue about. It's Why does that word here and that word here, it's not the point. The point comes to this. is basically it said, look, God has seen your life, and it's not good. He's weighed your actions on the scale, and they do not equal out to positivity. And therefore, I'm going to take everything you have, this whole kingdom, all this power, this wealth and opulence that has been given to you, and I'm going to tear it from you, and I'm going to give it to two different kingdoms, the Medes and the Persians. Now, this is what's fascinating as we read the Bible, friends, because this is the type of stuff you're like, yeah, Old Testament justice on Israel, right? Like, this is how we think our God operates. But do you recognize that that is not how our God operates? Even in the Old Testament, that's not how he operates. Our God operates from a position of redemption and grace. There was a kingdom that was a quasi-contemporary of the Babylonians called the Assyrians. They were the ones who wiped out the northern tribes of Israel. They were the worst people group who have ever lived. And maybe, you know, when I say that, like, there's tinges, you're like, that's racist. Like, no, it's not. Like, they, they would go into societies, rape, kill, maim, in the most brutal ways. Like, historians will say this is one of the most brutal empires that ever lived and God called one of his prophets and said, hey, you need to go and preach repentance to them. And he's like, that's a great idea, God. And he went the opposite way. And he ended up on a boat, which is funny because it was a land trip and he ended up on the ocean. Like, that's how far away he went. And then he was tossed overboard, swallowed by a fish, regurgitated on the shore and said, fine, I'll go. And went and preached to this horrible, horrible kingdom. And in Jonah chapter three, we read that when his warning reached the king of Nineveh, the king rose from his throne. And by the way, this was a precursor of Nebuchadnezzar. So this was the most powerful human being in the world at the time. When confronted with the message, he rose, took off his royal robes, covered himself with flat sackcloth, which is, you know, burlapy material that is uncomfortable. And it's a reminder of your 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 sin. And how you need repentance. Put on sackcloth, sat down in dust. And when God saw what the Assyrians did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on him the destruction that he had threatened. So God is a God who gives grace even to those who do not deserve it. Okay? So Daniel comes and he just says, hey, Belshazzar, here is the judgment upon you for your evil actions. There is space within this narrative for him to say,
1: oh man, what do I do?
0: How do I change so that this does not happen? The space exists because Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar's dad, turned his life around, so the possibility is there. And what do we see then, though, in verses 29 through 31? Then, at Belshazzar's command... Daniel was clothed in purple, a chain was placed around his neck, Atlanta, and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Basically, when all this is said, he's just like, oh man, that sucks. I've got a solution. I'm just going to bribe Daniel. (laughs) I'm going to give Daniel swag and power, and maybe that will change things. Which is funny because this is the opposite of what Daniel even said. He's like, this isn't about me. This isn't about you honoring me. This is about us understanding where we exist in the pantheon of creation. With God at top, us at the bottom, in need of his grace. And this person who had seen firsthand what happened to his father and how God changed his dad's life was just like, I'll buy you off. Like, what's the payoff? Nice robe, nice chain, amazing title. Verse 30, by the way, that very night Belshazzar, that very night Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain, and Darius the Mede took over his kingdom. Done. That's how this story ends. It's a great story, isn't it? This is weird on multiple levels, but it ought not be. There's many things that we can learn from right here. And so many times when we read the Bible, we're like, oh, I see this like, this base level of this. It's just like God likes his good people. He hates his bad people. Be like the good people, not the bad people. And then when you, you know, otherwise, boom, you're you, like a hand's going to appear, write some weird stuff, and you're going to end up dead that night, right? Just these, these simplistic messages but even though we've been looking at this examination of Daniel, you think that like, the object of that is like Daniel and the Israelites and how God's going to protect it. But really, it's an engagement of how God perceives those who live in power, who have everything they could imagine, and how will they find a way to live in agreements with God. That's one of the interesting things about doing church in the city. Because we're continually forced to confront the realities of the world around us. And like you, I'll be, just yesterday, Kelly and I were out jogging and a police car like came and, you know, pulled his lights on and pulled us over. And I was running in the street because she's just like, are you going to get busted for that? And I was like, you know, short hair don't care. I don't know what I said, but you know, I go up and the guy, he's like, have you seen this lady? And it was somebody in the neighborhood that I have seen here for the longest time and I don't know if they found her or not but she went missing and she lives in an assisted housing place she lives in the midst of poverty I think and I couldn't tell this I told Kelly I think the reason I know her is she used to show up at the Walnut Hill Soup Kitchen all the time and she had gone missing and it's just reality thank God I told the officers I'm glad you guys are looking for her but you just think about that is that it's a different existence when you're talking about the down and out And when you cross over Victory Parkway and head up at Madison Avenue, when I'm looking at structures that are amazingly beautiful, that are worth millions of dollars, from which expensive European cars emerge, right? Like as much as you might want to say, and there's this fascination of people living in this quadrant of having nothing, you know who it's most difficult to come to an understanding of this grace are the people who live without anything that they don't need, or the ones, the ones who have everything, the, the up and out. And really, that's what this book is about. It's an understanding of power, and it's trying to see that God is no respecter of that. He wants to see where we are in life. Again, I don't know how familiar you are with this story like I've always found it to be an interesting Bible story, but from us, I think we need to try to extract what God teaches us through this. You know, let's just be honest. Some of us might be Belshazzar. Maybe you just have so much power, you need to diffuse some of that to make sure you're not arrogant. I would say the lesson for us comes very key to the experience of Belshazzar and then his father. Because he had the chance to see, first and foremost, this turning of a person's life into something that could be. How he lived and how he changed, and friends, I think that's the toughest thing about this. When we go through Bible texts like this, and you're like, "I don't know this." God's not going to judge you by the Bible verses you don't know or the things that you've forgotten. You know your, your your knowledge. You know that's why he invented Wikipedia anyway. So that's all solved right now. But I think more so than anything, this is is that God is very interested to in seeing how we learn and adjust. I think scriptures testify that what he wants to see out of us is that we're better today than we were yesterday because we're learning from it. We've been talking about courage this whole book. It doesn't take courage to learn. You know what it takes? It takes humility. I'm in my 40s, so that's not too old, right, Kevin? Boom. But the older I get, the more I realize is that I don't want to learn naturally because it's difficult for me. Because I live my life by heuristics, these, you know, general rules that help me navigate through life, right? So for me, it takes more effort to learn. And I found out is that if I am not willing to humble myself, then I'm not going to learn. Because especially today as these young millennial generation Z whippersnappers, right, right? are coming up, there is knowledge that is there that I could benefit from having. But you know, for me to listen to that, I've got to be, realize that I'm not the sage. I've got to humble myself. Friends, that same thing is applicable spiritually. Okay? The Lord is teaching you lessons in your life. He, he wants you to see where you've screwed up, and he's giving you a definitive path to change. And the only inhibitor within that process is you and your mind are you going to be humble enough to really learn what God is teaching you? So amongst all the interesting things of this text, can I just conclude with this just question that I want you to pause and maybe you need to, you know, write it down on your phone, text it to yourself. Maybe you just need to contemplate this right now is number one, what is God teaching you right now in this moment in your life? What is God teaching you? And the follow-up question that I think the story of Belshazzar and Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel from this fifth chapter teaches us is that are you willing to humble yourself to truly learn it? What's God teaching you? Will you be humble enough to learn it? Pray with me. Heavenly Father, um, thank you for these obscure stories of scripture that are just so bizarre on the service, but Father, we can see that the complexity of all the aspects of the narrative can become incredibly simple if we just look inside ourselves to discover, Father, that like Belshazzar, even though we might not have his unlimited power, that we are prideful, that Father, that we want to be self-sufficient, that we want to learn at our own account, Father, but that we realize in your kingdom the the, 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 the key to wisdom is to start by fearing you. A positive, healthy fear where we acknowledge your place in the universe seated upon the throne in heaven and we are humble servants. Father, this week we're all going to go out and you're going to have lessons that you want to teach us. Maybe there are sins in the past that we need to move beyond, Maybe there are sins in our present that we need to eliminate. And maybe we're harboring up things for that there are sins in the future that we will commit. Father, just in any of these situations with us, number one, will you illuminate within us this idea that there are things that you're teaching us. Thank you for being a good, wise, faithful teacher. Help us to learn more. But Father, that second thing, let us heed the words of Daniel chapter five. Help us to humble ourselves. Humble ourselves before you, Father, because we realize It's that in that humility we're emulating the life of your son Jesus who gave all for us. We thank you for this time of worship. We thank you for your word. Guide us as we go out this week in his name. Amen.